0: unseen, undervalued, unloved, pushed aside, overlooked, hated, cast out. If you've spent any time trying to build meaningful relationships, there's a good chance you've experienced some of these feelings. Often when it happens, uh, if we haven't, Spent time building a relationship for very long, or we're just not that close, it can hurt, but it's not devastating. But there are other times when the other person should be there's someone you love and you thought they loved you. They're supposed to be somebody who cares for you. They're like family. Maybe they are family. and yet they hurt you in deep and powerful ways. Sometimes those people are the people of God. They're good Christians who other people look to to see how to live a godly life, and yet somehow that doesn't apply to you. And so what do we do when those people that we love and who should love us hurt us. One of the powerful things of the stories of Scripture is that it doesn't shy away from these types of things. Even when it is the people of God who hurt others, the Scriptures are honest and open. And as we read through the book of Genesis, the chapters that have led up to this passage have mainly focused on Abram and secondarily, Sarah. And you've seen God meet with Abram and offer him a promise of children, of descendants that will number the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. He's going to be the patriarch of a great nation. And those people will possess a land that God will show them. And they are meant to be a blessing to the nations. And up to this point, Sarah hasn't been mentioned in the promise. It hasn't been told to us that Sarah is the one that this promise is supposed to come through. But if you're Sarah, you can imagine being Abraham's wife, if he's been promised descendants, that you are probably planning to be a part of that. And yet, she can't have children. And for a woman like Sarah and her time and place in this situation, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to her. Enter Hagar. Up to this point in the story, she's an unknown. She hasn't been mentioned. She's one of Sarah's servants. She's probably been with the family for 10 years it tells us that she's Egyptian. This is when they were in Egypt. It was about 10 years ago. So the chances are good. That's how long she's been with them. Maybe it's been more, maybe it's been less. But as she's been there among the tribes, she's probably heard the stories of God's meeting with Abram. She's probably heard the stories about this tribe that she's a part of being a blessing to the nations. Being Sarah's servant, She's probably been with Sarah in those times of despair. Those times when she maybe cries out to God asking for children. And maybe it's possible that Hagar was even a comfort to Sarah in those times. But now, without any agency of her own, Hagar, Hagar is being offered as a secondary wife in order for them to have descendants using her body as a vessel. Hagar does what she's asked to do and once she's pregnant, Sarah comes to the realization that this was a terrible idea. She realizes that having a child by this other woman makes her already bad situation even worse. And so she makes Hagar's situation worse. Abram, who is the leader of the tribe, has the power and the authority to do something, decides to take the road of less resistance, shirks his responsibility, to Hagar and his child and leaves Hagar's fate to Sarah. How could these two chosen people favored by God do something like this? At first, I had a hard time imagining it. But how often... Do we get the big picture and plan in our mind? And we start to think about the huge things that God has for us. And we start to work in that direction. And in the meantime, the people who are closest to us become invisible. I think we get a glimpse of where Abram and Sarah are in this passage as you look at their exchanges whenever they are speaking they never use Hagar's name she is always referred to as Sarah's servant they have found a way to dehumanize her to make her less than maybe a piece of property or something to be used for greater purposes So now Hagar is nameless, powerless, used by people in an unjust system and now even seen as a threat and put aside. This puts Hagar in a position in which taking taking her chances in the wilderness seems like her best option, even if that means her death. And unfortunately, this isn't just a story that we read about. This is something that many in this room and who will watch online and that you have interaction with feel and experience on a regular basis. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. 20,000 phone calls are made per day to domestic violence hotlines. 20,000 per day. 48% of men and women have experienced at least one form of psychological aggression by an intimate partner. And 60% of adults, 60% of all adults, have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience such as exposure to physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, witnessing violence, serious mental illness, or substance misuse in the home. Whether we want to admit it or not, we live in a world where people hurt each other. We have a tendency to put on our happy face, come and sit with each other and pretend like it doesn't exist. And as I prayed about this sermon, one of the things I prayed about was that as we come in, oftentimes we we don't want to talk about things like this. We want to leave and feel good. But if we can't talk about this in the presence of God, with the people of God, where can we talk about it? So for all of us who relate to Hagar on one level or another, first let me just say I'm sorry. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But God has something for us today. Earlier, I wondered out loud, what do we do when others let us down like this? What do we do when it seems like the people who care for us are working against us? What do we do when we are put in systems that put us in impossible positions? As I looked at the text again, I think the better question, the question that God leads us to ask in this instance is not what do we do, but what does God do? As Hagar leaves the camp, she starts to head down this road and eventually stops. Stops beside this well, this spring, this body of water, this, this liquid of life. And she sits there in her distress. And God shows up. We don't get any sense from the text that Hagar has done anything to position herself to hear from God. She hasn't practiced some sort of discipline to hear from God. She is just sitting by the stream in her distress and in God's gracious love, he shows up. And he acknowledges that she is in a bad place. She says, God says, Hagar, Hagar, Where have you come from and where are you going? Take note first that this is the first time in the story anyone has directly called Hagar by her name. God speaks to her by name. Where have you been and where are you going? God knows the answer, but he invites Hagar to speak it. He invites Hagar to speak her pain, to speak the things done to her. And Hagar answers and said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. She doesn't answer the second part of the question. And I think that's important. She knows where she's come from. She can identify What has happened to her? She has no idea where she's going. She's on a road to nowhere. Maybe on a road to death. And then the next thing God says threw me for a loop for a while. I honestly had to wrestle with it. I was a little upset the first time I read it. Hagar, where are you going? Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running from my mistress, Sarah. And God says, you need to go back. What? Go back. Why would God send her back? to this place that is causing her distress and harm. And I think I've come to the place, and you can disagree with me about this, but I think I've come to the place that God understood if, Sarah, if Hagar kept going in the direction she was going, it would lead to her death or at least unfulfillment. but God didn't send her back the same way that she found herself there. God says, Hagar, I've seen your distress. You will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. and He will have many descendants. You will be the matriarch of a nation. Do you hear it? She's lived for years hearing Abram tell the story of his encounter with God and how God has promised that he will have a son. And he, from that son, there will be a nation. And now God looks, calls Hagar by name and says, I've seen you. You will have a son and that son will lead to a great nation. They are not the same nation. But God has leveled the playing field. When Hagar returns to the tribe, she does not return the same. She does not return less than. She does not return as a piece of property. She does not return unseen by this God that Abram keeps telling us about. She returns with new hope, new purpose, seen by God and given a new vision of her life. That is a different experience, friends. Can we take a short detour? Would that be all right in this story? Up to this point in the book of Genesis, the narrator has focused on Abram and Sarah. This story turns our focus toward Hagar, but can we go back to Abram and Sarah for just one second? Because I think they're instructive to us as well. Abram has received a promise from God. And let's be honest for a second. Abram and Sarah maybe have stopped believing that God is going to fulfill this promise. They're getting older. Sarah can't have children. Maybe God, just maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. And so let's take this into our own hands and figure it out for ourselves. I get that. Is anybody there with me? I understand. I have waited on God before and thought, I'm not sure you're going to do anything. And it's real easy to begin to try to manipulate the situation yourself. But here's the problem. What they did in the time period, perfectly legal. Even common. It was not... Unusual for a wife to give one of her servants as a secondary wife to her husband in order to have more children, specifically male children. Here's the problem Ishmael is now the firstborn of Abram. He is now legally the one who inherits Abram's legacy. They have now messed up God's promise. Through their actions, they have now. Put an obstacle in the way of God's promise. And so it's easier for them. It even makes sense that maybe if Hagar just leaves and we don't have to deal with Ishmael, that makes it better. God's promise is back on track. Let's be real. As I look at the situation, it would be easier for God. Can you hear how we could talk ourselves into this? It would be easier for God if Hagar wasn't here. Hagar can, or God can do what God's going to do now. Here's the beauty of the story God is not anxious about fulfilling his promise, he's not the least bit worried about it. God gives preference to the person rather than worrying about some perceived threat to the promise. God sees Hagar and says, Right now, she is the priority. I can work out the promise. And friends, I wonder if there are times in our lives when we see people as a threat to God's promise and they no longer become people, they become an obstacle. And so our temptation is to make their situation worse. So hopefully they'll leave and we don't have to deal with them. Now, when Hagar and Ishmael walk back into this camp after their encounter with God, they come with a new swagger. Hagar has a promise of her own now. She doesn't see herself as less than anymore. And now, as they walk around the camp, they are walking prophecies. They are walking words against Abram and Sarah's mistake. Their presence in the community all of a sudden becomes something that we have to address, something that we have to deal with, something that we have to say, God, what are you going to do now? And I've found that when those people who remind me of my failures are in my life, all of a sudden I have to trust God more because I can't control the situation. They're there. I can't avoid it. I can't ignore them. They won't be cast out. And so their life becomes a prophetic word in my existence. And I wonder if there are some people that we need to acknowledge our prophetic words in our lives. Is it possible The true trust in God understands that God is able to fulfill his promise no matter the threat that we see someone else to be. And so maybe, just maybe, we lean in to grace and love more and trust God to work out the rest. End of detour back on the main road. There was a holy accident that happened this week. The scripture video that you saw didn't go to the end of the passage. There was a little bit of miscommunication. And as I looked at the passage and I thought, what, you know, how am I gonna navigate this? I thought, well, thank God that was a holy accident. Because what happened is the scripture video keeps us focused on what God did in this situation, right? It leaves us with that. The end of the passage might answer the question we asked earlier. What are we supposed to do? And really what we do is purely a response to what God has done. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, Hagar used another name, to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well, that body of water was named well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. God turns the story and our role his response. You see, throughout the scripture, God has often given people names to call him. He does it for Abraham in the next chapter. He says, You can call me El Shaddai, the Almighty God. But here, Hagar turns and gives God a name. She says, You are the God who sees me. Something has turned in her. She is seen. She is known. She is loved. She understands that she is a daughter of the Most High God. And friends, I'll be honest, over the years, the stories that I've heard and the things I've experienced myself, when we have those points of pain or trauma in our lives, one of the key turning points whether I'm sitting and praying with someone in a wellspring session, if I'm listening to God with someone in spiritual direction, if I'm in pastoral counseling, if I hear someone's story of recovery, one of the turning points in their life is when they have a moment and they say, you know what? I understood right then and there that God sees me. God knows me. God is not ashamed of me. God loves me. And God has a hope and a future for my life. Even after that moment, there will still be work to do. You'll still probably want the help of a trained counselor. You'll need the body of Christ around you to love you and support you. You may a wellspring session or a spiritual director, you may need to leave a hurtful situation. There will still be work to do, but in the midst of that work, you will understand that you are seen by the Almighty Creator, the one who calls you good. There's almost a throwaway line at the end of the passage that is easy to miss after her encounter with God, Hagar looks at this body of water and she names it. She says, this is the well of the one who sees me. This is a spot that she can continually look at as life-giving, as hope-filled, And she can remember that this is the space where the living one, the creator, God Almighty, saw her. And there's a little line at the end that says, and that well is still there on the road. So when other people are on the road, this road of despair and hopelessness, this road to nowhere, they can sit by this well and remember that This is the well of the one who sees me. What a beautiful picture of God's love and grace.